was burning Down the track came a hobo hiking And he said, boys, I'm not turning I'm headed for a land that's far away Beside the crystal fountain Hello. Uh, you're watching Homeless in Aspen on Grassroots TV in Aspen, Colorado. Uh, I'm Vince Savage. I am the director of the Aspen Homeless Shelter. And uh, we are, you know, kind of talking about the Big Rock Candy Mountain of homelessness in Colorado. Uh, just so people know, we started the uh, homeless shelter here in 2009. We're a 501c3 um, not-for-profit corporation. And our mission is basically uh, threefold at, at its most fundamental uh, place. And that is uh, we want to keep people from freezing to death in the coldest months of the year here at 8,000 feet in the Rockies. And secondly, we want to make sure no one uh, who's homeless or even people that maybe aren't homeless goes hungry. So we have a, a hot evening meal program that we serve people you know, hot, nutritious meals 365 days a year here. And our third level of mission is to try to give people a hand up into mainstreaming themselves again. And we do that with a number, in a number of ways, but, you know, providing clothing to people that we can get, perhaps even buy or get from the thrift shop, uh, provide them a phone, provide them uh, internet access, uh, and some other services like counseling and sociability building, uh, job hunting services, and so on. Uh, I always like to thank our major donors. Uh, we have an unwritten promise to our local donors that we are here to take care of our locals, not necessarily create a destination homeless resort for folks from all over to come here and snowboard and have fun in Aspen while they're homeless. But I'd like to thank Douglas Elliman Real Estate, uh, the Little Nell Hotel, Aspen Valley Hospital, various churches here in town, um, the county to some extent, and the Aspen Thrift Shop are some of our regular donors. Now, there are many, many other people who, vo who volunteer or who donate uh, in smaller amounts, all of which we uh, appreciate. Another thing that it might be useful to say to begin with, uh, just as context, is 80% of our homeless population work but working in Aspen at certain levels of income doesn't necessarily make it possible for you to afford even the APSHA, Aspen Pitkin County Housing Authority uh, kinds of housing uh, because, for example, people may work in the ski season, they may work in the uh, summer uh, when there's more going on, but most housing situations require paying rent all year round. So we get a lot of people that are in and out of the shoulder seasons without work uh, or without as much work as they would have the rest of the time. But I want to welcome today Marion McDonough, who's the regional director of Catholic <laughs> Charities. Her offices are in Glenwood Springs. So uh, Marion, welcome to this little show. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I might just say that Marion and I have known each other a long time. Uh, yeah. I sit on a committee down there, but we call the Continuum of Care in Glenwood Springs, Correct. which we may clarify some of those differences and what that means because there are different yeah. levels of that term, Continuum of Care. But uh, maybe the thing to do would be start out by asking you to explain what, what does that mean, Continuum of Care for the Homeless? It, well, you're absolutely correct in that it's, it's kind of taken on two different meanings, one locally and one's more nationwide. So nationwide continuum of care has to do with um, HUD, which is the Housing and Urban Development um, Department that is federal, federal, agency, federal yeah. agency. We get some funds from them through the Colorado Coalition Through the Homeless, and as um, a requirement of receiving those funds, we have to have continuum of care meetings. But and that is nationwide terms, HUD terms, you know, it's used all over. And the purpose of those meetings, which have been occurring as long as we've been receiving funding, which is longer than I've been with Catholic Charities, um, is to promote uh, a kind of a community-wide commitment to end homelessness, but also to encourage self-sufficiency and um, just 
other uh, care factors, I guess, in place. And so our continuum of care um, encompasses our region, which is Eagle Pick and Garfield counties, coming together. And it's everyone who has a, a hand on and touches the homeless. So that's why you're a part of that group. Pickin County is a part of that group. Garfield County is a part of that group. Mind Springs. And so just a variety of entities that touch the homeless coming together and um, talking about what do we do and how do we make sure the people here are safe cared for and how or how do we move them out how do we move them into yeah the word continuum implies a point of entry at some point right and then perhaps a point of exit or as you say move them out or into housing correct and if that becomes stable long-term housing then i guess that person is no longer homeless right and the you know right now there's a variety of point of entries i guess you know you yeah, would tell be, me about that yeah you i mean you would be one the shelter for sure is is a point of entry because someone um, walks in our door and says i have no place to sleep i have nothing to eat Help right me. yeah feed my sheep down in glenwood springs is another one sometimes it's um the counties, uh, because they, they've become aware of someone who's come in for economic services or as a child welfare or something. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Maybe it's a Salvation Army. Maybe, you know, so there's a variety of point of entries right now. Um, as part of our HUD funds that does a continuum of care allows us to move people um, out of homelessness, so get housing for them, um, and then... It, the program's changed a little bit in the last two years to where um, we can provide assistance for um, a little bit longer than a year, but ideally not more than a year. After they get into housing, you after mean? The, yeah, oh. after we're able to get them into housing. We have a very small amount of vouchers to move people um, into housing, and one of the big problems we run into right now is finding housing for people to get into. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the solution to homelessness is homes, yeah. you know, or yeah. housing. And anybody who's been in this valley more than five minutes knows that housing is a problem here for any level of income, just about. Um, and certainly for this normal, you know, day-to-day, 40-hour-a-week, working-class kinds of folks, they have many people come here thinking, oh, yeah, the pay is pretty good, and then they get here right. and think, wow. The cost right. of living, including food and gas and everything else, is a little bit daunting. It is, absolutely. And, and, and that's why as much as getting people out of homelessness into housing, it becomes as critical to keep people in their homes. Um, so that's part of the effort, too, to prevent homelessness when people are in a shaky situation to, to do some supportive, whether that's food support or... Right. Yeah. And that's where Catholic Charities Just Emergency Assistance does a lot of that, just rent assistance to help people stay in homes. Um, because if you lose your house and, and if for some reason you don't get your deposit back, now you're, I mean, you're talking three, $4,000 to get into housing oftentimes. And yeah, that barrier tough. to entry, we call it, that yeah. hump of like first, last, and deposit. Right. And as a landlord type of person, you know, imagining what their needs are, Sure. They don't want to, you know, say yes to someone who doesn't have the first and last just because they're low income or homeless. Yeah. So they're going to try to go with well-qualified, you know, tenants. Mm -hmm. But that becomes a problem too, doesn't it? Because even I've heard of stories where somebody gets into housing, but for various reasons, maybe behaviors or insufficient income, that after a period of time, they're in danger of losing it. Sometimes for those reasons, sometimes I know some of the, the folks that have come through our program that we've been able to get into housing, and then they do even get on a HUD or a Section 8 HUD voucher, which mm -hmm. will pay their housing for a, a longer period of time, a more extended period of time. Um, what, hap what sometimes has happened is when we're dealing with them, we're providing very intensive case management. So we're meeting with folks weekly. Um, near the end of their time with us, maybe it's twice a month or monthly. Um, but when that case management goes away and they're, they're helping to look at their budget, they're helping to not have 
other people talk them into being generous and share their giving funds. whatever funds they have away or sharing their sharing sharing their housing sharing their housing illegally. when somebody's yeah not supposed to be there all of those can put them in, in at risk of losing their housing and and that case management is so 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 critical yeah and that's a term we hear all the time is case management i'm not sure everybody really understands what that means it means a lot more than somebody somewhere in an office having your name on a file Absolutely. and thinking, oh, yeah, what's his name or what's her name? But yeah. it, it really has to do with helping people maintain or even learn life skills like budgeting, like Absolutely. making good choices about how loud a party you have or right. who you invite over that yeah. ends up being an indefinite couch surfer on your couch or right. whatever. Because yeah. we had a pilot program for a while during the off seasons in the old in the Marold housing thing up here, when uh, a foundation called the Aspen Valley Medical Foundation was our chief support, and we worked up a deal with APSHA and the county, and uh, that while this housing was sitting there, often empty for a couple months in the off season, that we would carefully vet people, and come up with a reduced rent, some of which the foundation subsidized. And just try to get people over that hump to actually get mm -hmm. them living in a place with four walls and a roof for a while. And what kind of, the fact that it wasn't year-round availability, but secondly, one of the things that kind of torpedoed it was the choices that some of our people, even though we vetted them as the most responsible, got it, were kind of mainstream people that just happened to be without housing, the thing that, that, that killed it was that uh, the visitors that, came over right? Yep. and had no investment in that person keeping the rules happy and so sure. one thing led to another and the whole program kind of was like we don't need that. So how does that differ from something that we've been calling permanent supportive housing? Tell me about how that would work. So what you're talking about there is kind of what might be termed as transitional housing. So okay. it's like where do you put somebody for you know, one to six months, perhaps. In this case, it would have been shorter, you know, yeah. two or three months, but to allow them to get stabilized and then they're moving into different housing that you hope at that point is permanent. Permanent supportive housing is set up to, um, with a couple things in mind. One of the main ideas is that there aren't eligibility requirements, hmm. there aren't um, there's it's to try to reduce as many barriers as possible so you don't if somebody has uh, mental health issues if somebody has substance abuse you want to house them first and then try to get those supports in place to help them to get sober to help them to get educated whatever the needs whatever their needs are um, to meet the needs after you house them. So instead of telling a person, you deal with your mental health issues, you deal with your drinking or drugging issues, and then just maybe if it's available, we'll get you into housing. Right. The Housing First initiative, and, and there's a whole national movement, maybe international movement, about Housing First, pointing out the clear facts that it's so much more effective and affordable once people have a place to live to deal with these other problems instead of the other way around. You know, you've got to earn your way into housing or whatever. Right. And some things are, are solved um, relatively quickly, especially around health issues where if you're, you know, you're in the elements and, mm. and things like that that are sometimes exasperated by that kind of stuff. But um, that takes care of us. And the other thing about the permanent supportive housing is you have that case management. You have that, those... Um, Facilities are those opportunities and resources available, maybe not specifically on site, but you've got people coming to offer those services um, so that you can really make sure that, that people are getting the services they need to, to continue to move forward in their goals. And, and the, so it's not just putting them in housing and then saying, okay, see, see you later. later. You, yeah, we, exactly. We ended your homelessness. Right, right. Here's a bed. Good luck. You know, it's really to help people moving forward and, and to continue to um, have them meet goals. Because a lot of people who are calling themselves or are called homeless are people that have been in and out of housing over periods of time. Right. They just haven't been sitting there since they were 12 or 18 on a curb. They've 
been in different kinds of volatile housing situations, but it, it's not what you'd call stable housing. Right. And so that's a term we've been hearing a lot lately is a housing stability group that has been formed here in the last six or eight months mm-hmm. in Aspen to look into what's really needed. And you're on the planning committee or whatever for that. Right. Uh, what is it, just five or six people that are knowledgeable? And right. Maybe it's a little more. Uh, trying to figure out, well, what do we need to do when to get this problem solved? So what's your answer to that? I mean, you're an important per- person on that committee. What, <laughs> what's going to happen or <laughs> what should happen? Well, one, one of the great things I think the, the committee is <laughs> looking at, and, and it becomes um, – it, or it can be kind of almost overwhelming as if you say, okay, there is this, and here's where the other continuum of care term comes in, of, of they're looking at the, what's the continuum from the time a person's homeless to the time they're, they're self-sufficient? What, what's all those different varieties in between? So you've got maybe your emergency shelter first. Do you then go to transitional housing? Do you need something like a sober living situation for halfway house almost sort of right thing, yeah. for a number of years or do you just need a two or three month transition to save some money um, and then you get into your permanent housing so there's a variety of levels to get there but the, what the group's really looking at is how do we identify that person and then how do how do we make sure the resources are there to to move the person along that continuum and get them into housing. So unlike a four-year college where everybody signs up in September of their first right. year and they right. just go along and take the courses, it's a little more individualized than that. In other words, every case is a little different. Is what Absolutely. You're oh, yeah. So you really need a kind of a grab bag of options and solutions to apply to a given person. And then I guess that's what a case manager really does. That's what the case manager absolutely is, to really sit down and look and not – not for the case manager to plan for the person, but no. to plan with the person. Right. What do they want to do? Not uh, to do for, but to do with. Right. Yeah. And and how do you how do you teach them to fish? You know, yeah. and, and instead of just continuing to feed them. Yeah, um, and we we have a term we use. It's not a handout. It's a hand. Hand up. up exactly. But that doesn't mean we don't give people free food and free clothing, and we don't charge anything for people to come in and right. take showers and use the computers and. Uh, that sort of thing. And in this day and age, sometimes if you you know the computers are so important, and, uh, and thank goodness for a lot of those access in the library for the people to apply for jobs, and um, and just because that's everything's computerized anymore. That's true. So ideally, you could imagine a person who's highly motivated, but has had some bad breaks or maybe made some bad decisions but they're really motivated to get back into a workforce income level where they could afford at least the minimum available housing, which we've already said is a problem here already because mm-hmm. the lowest cost housing here isn't exactly what some people would call affordable, certainly not low cost. Right. But what experience do you have with people who seem to be their own worst enemy in a sense that you know, you can offer people things all day long, but they're not in the mood or they have interceding difficulties. Uh, you see that sometimes with people with addiction, you know. Mm-hmm. They've got the plan. They talk to their case manager that day. They're on their way out, but they don't make it by the liquor store or the bar. I mean, I how does that fit into all this? Because those are the kind of questions I get a lot of. It's like, sure. you know, well, are you just supporting people to be irresponsible? I yeah. mean, what's what do you think as far as... How does case management work with that? Those people that you're describing, those are the challenge for you, for us, for the police, for the hospitals, um, for everybody. And it's, it's, you know, I, when they keep coming into our offices, and I know my, our staff will just get so frustrated with, with them. And it's like, okay, how, how do we continue to form the relationships? And that's where also part of the case management you know mm-hmm. how do you form the relationship over and it could take a very very long time so you so it takes a lot of patience a lot of patience a lot, a lot of lot. compassion and then can you get to the root of what what is it that's preventing that person you know if it's substance abuse 
Yeah. When will they get to the point that they want to make a difference and they want to get sober? If it's mental health issues, can you get them to go talk to a mental health provider? Um, you know, and people have developed certain lack of trust, oh, certain gosh, trust yeah. issues. You could say with us do-gooders, you know, yeah. which maybe uh, you couldn't possibly understand. You've never been homeless. Well, some people that have worked with me have been homeless. Yeah. Uh, I mean, people that work for our agency, but um, it's one of those tough things um, trying to reach that person who. Um, seems to not be able to get traction i guess is a good way to put it i mean and the heart and the, the thing that's so difficult about those people is they're everybody who's trying so hard to help them is getting so frustrated along the way yeah we and we to have not a term called <laughs> compassion fatigue right? <laughs> exactly and and so you want to keep it, and then you get to the point of two of you know well heck I'm not going to work it harder than they are at it yeah and I've heard so you want to yeah you want to throw your hands up and just the go okay forget it the therapist should never work harder than the client yeah but it's it's so some people you know you don't want to you don't want to truly give up on them but they're awfully hard to help sometimes when they just try to they throw a roadblock at every effort. And sometimes those people, I will also say, are the ones that you, you might see panhandling mm -hmm. that are going to say, the homeless shelter wouldn't help me, Catholic Charities wouldn't help me, Salvation Army wouldn't help me. And you know what? A lot of those agencies have helped them, and mm -hmm. a lot of those agencies have tried. And they're in now, in now a stage, again, of being out on the street and, and getting help from someone else for a while. You know, I, I had a guy in my office recently who was touting all of his great achievements, and I used to be this, and I used to be that, and I used to be a millionaire. And I said, well, you've flunked out of the homeless shelter now. Where does that fit on your resume? <laughs> you know, where, do, where does that fit on your Vita? <laughs> and, you know, I'm trying to be jovial about it. Sure. But I'm also trying to get a look at this, like, wait a minute. You know, if you did all that, what's, what's the difference now? And, you know, uh, pe most people know I'm trained as a psychologist, and I have to ask sometimes for the poor person who just means well and wants to help, and the case manager or the neophyte mm -hmm. counselor who thinks, well, we're just going to talk about a few feelings and this person's going to catch hold and get traction and pull themselves out of this rut. It's not always that easy. No. And we know people, you know, I've been in, around Aspen in over 30 years, and I know people who I could see the degeneration or the progressive disease 30 years ago, and today I can say, yep, they're right on schedule. Yeah. You know, now they're at the point of not being able to just make it through the season or barely, you know, live by a fingernail hold. Right. And they are becoming people who are really in serious need of some assisted care. And then the question comes up for a lot of people, so whose obligation is it to pay for that? And uh, that's another big issue I think we all deal with, and I don't know what you guys down in Glenwood do about that. I know we've used, used Catholic Charities many times to mm -hmm. help a person who has a plan that looks like they could make it work and what we call a assistance of a bridge nature. In other words, right. I think your policy is you may help somebody with rent but not if it's just going to extend their crisis one more month, because mm -hmm. they've got to have a plan, and if they really need this down payment or this uh, month's rent or part of it or something like that, or even a bus ticket to some place where they have family or have a job offered, Catholic Charities is really helpful in that regard. But it doesn't mean you're just there as a bucket that they get to take money out of to get through that day, you know. Well, yeah, because unfortunately we're not—we don't have bottomless funds, you know. We don't have that money tree that we can pick, pick funds off. But, but we try to, um, just—I guess it's, you know, those people we're talking about that are just—they're so hard to deal with. It's like, you know, how do you still give them the compassion? How do you still give them the caring? How do you still give them the respect and dignity, and hope at some point? There, you know, you'll you will be able to help them in in some way or and another. How does but the, the helping person not get too discouraged? Because everybody likes a job where you go home and you feel like you finished the design, you drove, you did the model, even you mowed that lawn today. You can look right. back on it and go, hey, look at those neat right. rows. 
you know, those kind of things are a basic human nature to feel something's been accomplished. Yep. So, you know, we might um, for a moment stop at that point uh, a little bit where we can say this is the point where you reach compassion fatigue. Yep. Sometimes it's outrage fatigue. You mm -hmm. know, when you hear enough outrageous stories over <laughs> and over again, you just want to tear your own hair and go, what yeah. the heck is going on here? So it's not easy, and it's, it's very respectable work that people do. So I think, um, I don't know, I, I want to boil this down to, like, this is where we get stuck, right? And, and let the viewing audience know that it's not just a matter of applying... What we used to say with cigarette, or not cigarette boxes, but cereal boxes when I was a kid, they always had a little model you could build by oh, right, cutting right. up the box, insert tab A into slot uh, B, right. and there you have it, you know, a cardboard lion or something. Sure. So um, I think that we might uh, consider that a kind of a resting point here for a minute and uh, talk about the fact that we all reach that. We all reach compassion fatigue. Some people quit the work, you know. They go on to do something else, you know. That's very true. But other people stick it out. So you've been doing this how many years? I've been doing it for 10, but I am not on the front lines like my staff. And that's, I mean, I've got to say, I've got to hand it to, to a lot of them. I mean, I, not that I do answer the phones. I do talk to people. We're a small office. There's only six of yeah. us. So we're all moving in and, and around. But, but there's... Um, you know, other people that are dealing with it much more intensely than I am every day. And so we have to incorporate a lot of self-care, and we talk about it, you know, that's yeah. at staff meetings. You know, what, what's what been really tough for you this week, and, and what can you do for yourself this weekend? Yeah, to not let that frustration get you down. And what are the successes also? Well, that's I mean, that's thing. the yeah. other thing. We do yeah. have a tendency to focus on the right. problem sure. cases because they draw our attention. Right. But we may... You know, we may have to remind ourselves at times how many people we really have helped. Exactly. You know, and we, um, I think for one of these housing stability meetings, it's, you know, I had to come up with a little count of how many people have we moved out of homelessness in the last, yeah. say, five years. And it was 53. It was like, oh, my gosh, that's, that's a lot. And... Um, and then some statistician wants more than yeah. just an anecdotal. We're tired of anecdotal stories about who succeeded. We want to see the figures right. and all this right. data-based and yep. evidence-based stuff, which drives people like me crazy. But, but like let's that. take a, um, a brief rest at that point. Maybe we'll play a little more of our theme song, the Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is what some people see Aspen and this valley as. It's a place to go where the cigarettes grow on trees and there are rich people there to help us make it through. And, uh, and then we'll come back in a second and uh, see what else we, we want to talk about for a little while, okay? Sounds Mary great. Mary McDonough, the uh, regional director of uh, Catholic Charities right here in our valley. Um, we'll come back in a minute. One evening as the sun went down and the jungle fire was burning Down the track came a hobo hiking and he said, boys, I'm not turning I'm headed for a land that's far away beside the crystal fountains So come with me, we'll go and see the big rock candy mountains in the big rock candy mountains There's a land that's fair and bright Where the handouts grow on bushes And you sleep out every night Where the boxcars all are empty And the sun... Well, welcome back to Homeless in Aspen on Grassroots TV. I'm talking with Marion McDonough, who's the regional director of Catholic Charities, which is a, well, it's a national organization, isn't it? But it they're, it's a national organization. We're Catholic Charities Colorado wide. Yeah, it's archdiocesan specific or diocese specific. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, as Father Hilton told me one day, I was talking to him about people saying, "Well, how can we compete? You've got all that Pope money." And he said, "No, it doesn't work that way. No, the doesn't. actual money comes usually from the parishes, 
Right. And if anything, it goes up to the archdiocese and up to the pope, maybe eventually right. to the Vatican. But you know, so just to dispel that myth that if it's a Catholic sort of base service, it doesn't mean they have unlimited uh, chests of gold sitting around somewhere in Italy. Yeah, that's very true, and that's also people will. We do get that confusion sometimes mm -hmm. I think where people say oh yeah you're a Catholic organization you have lots of money but we're actually a separate 501c3 from the Archdiocese I of see. Denver um, they do fund us somewhat um, but it's like 4% of our budget so 4% it's, that yes. sounds like uh, almost a nominal yeah, it's, it's like a, we're involved with each other but we're not right supporting it's pretty it. minimal so we're really responsible for raising our own funds and Catholic Charities Western Slope, Eagle Pick and Garfield Counties, is responsible for raising our funds to exist and provide the services that we do. Um, we unfortunately <laughs> could use some help on that in that we operate as a deficit typically, and um, Denver does support us because um, they they value the work the mission, that we yeah. do. They do. Um, but they, I keep getting more and more pressure to be self-sufficient up here. So. Yeah, I hear that term a lot. And of course, yeah. that's the same thing we're trying to teach Talk our homeless clients. Exactly. It's like, as an organization, are we hanging by a fingernail, right. begging every corner, you know, we fly a sign saying, you know, right. help, we do good work, help Catholic charities, help the Aspen Homeless Shelter. I <laughs> so, know, there you yeah, go. Yeah, it's kind of uh, ironic, <laughs> if not humorous. It is. Yeah. So, um, you know, another thing we were just talking about in a, previous segment about how it's easy to get discouraged or compassion fatigue or even outrage fatigue as I like to call it and we're thinking we often neglect to uh, talk about all the positive things that we can talk about and you know maybe cases of people that we know have made the mainstream you know rise to self-sufficiency yep. and maintain that so um I don't know. Do you got any rough ideas in, in your mind about the percentage of people you help? How many of them end up making it in our lifetime, or, or how many of them are just what percentage is just seemingly chronically displaced and homeless? Well, one of our goals is to, if we've provided rent assistance, um, which could be, it could be a month's worth, it could be three months worth, it could be up to a year's worth. But at at the end of our involvement with those folks is that six month six months later are they still housed ah. so we'll we're calling those folks and trying to track them down and see if they're still housed and typically we're 90 or 95 percent that's pretty important um, that's so after six months 90 or 95 percent of the people that you've helped and case managed into housing are still right. in housing right and then, and then we don't purposely follow up. Um, a lot of folks, especially that were in um, longer-term relationships with us, uh, say where we've helped them for a year or more, um, and they've really developed a relationship with that caseworker, that mm -hmm. person yeah. who's helped them, um, they will continue to come back and check in or ask questions or because now they've got someone, they've got a support in the community. They've got someone who believes in them and can can help yeah. them move. So we'll continue those ties even when they're really self-sufficient. They're, they're out there on their own and they're making it. They are in terms of the nuts and bolts, the housing, the front door that locks, the clothing right. to wear, a job to go to. But um, there are other kinds of support that traditionally have been supplied by family or right. extended family or people's churches or mm -hmm. uh, synagogue or whatever spiritual practice they have um, they may go to the shaman if they're Native American you know right. um, and so I'm particularly interested in what happens to people once they get over this ostensible homeless problem you know we we've used this term I've heard it used we're going to end homelessness mm -hmm. at which I bristle because I think well we can end homelessness for an individual by getting them right. into housing and, and a more robust life even than they might have thought possible. But there's usually someone come along to take their place, isn't there? So this concept of ending homelessness is a, a bit of a challenge to me. And one of the local judges mm -hmm. told me recently they read an article about 
the theory that back somewhere in Connecticut or in the East Coast somewhere, they have ended homelessness. And uh, this particular person was searching for the, the email that they read about it, said, but no, some people are saying, no, that's not what it, it's not what it sounds like. It's mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm totally in favor of helping people get out of homelessness, individual people, or even large numbers. Yeah. But as far as ending the phenomenon of homelessness, seems like it's not going to go away overnight, is it? I mean, are we all looking at what we're going to do next week when we retire because everybody's gotten housed? Or <laughs> well, it's it's to truly end homelessness, you have to end all the causes of homelessness. And and if you start listing all the different causes. Um, and then trying to tackle them one by one, it's, it'd be a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy. And that's, and there's one of the things, too, in an article I recently read was talking about how the funding has shifted through mm. the years, where a, a lot of, at one time, there was so much funding from the federal governments, and now it's come down to the states and even oftentimes the cities. And so to truly tackle these issues and to put that amount of monetary responsibility on something like a small city or town um, is a lot. You know, it's a lot for that city and town to come up with and to truly tackle the problem. And I think that's part of, too, this housing stability group. And there's another group in Garfield. Well, it's regional because it's the yeah. um, West Mountain Regional Health Alliance yeah. um, is also looking at this issue, is yes. how do we tackle it regionally so we've got combined resources? Because for any one entity to do it on their own is a lot. But going back to your question of, of totally end, ending homelessness, I think it's there's just such a myriad of reasons that people get into it, and it'd be really hard to get rid of all those reasons. <laughs> now, I promised you we weren't going to be too controversial here, however. Um, <laughs> what about this concept of are we trying to do good, but are we creating the big rock candy mountain that our intro music talks about? I mean, that was a song in the 1930s about a guy was walking down the railroad tracks and I'm not coming to your jungle hobo camp because I'm heading toward the big rock candy mountain where the cigarettes grow on trees and the right. alcohol runs in the streams and and uh, everything's just great. So I'm just wondering, uh, to sound like play devil's advocate for a minute, I mean, I've been 10 years directly and five years before that dealing with a lot of people in need, uh, particularly in Aspen. But I do have to ask the question, is there a danger of creating an area on the map that everything's so groovy that people in need and people that are desperate keep coming here. Yeah. Um, well, I guess it would depend what the solutions are, you yeah. know? I mean, if you, if you were saying... Um, Handing out the free cigarettes and the bottles of vodka is one thing. Then, right, right then, then, then probably that word will get out and you'll get people. Um, <laughs> right now, when, because we don't have a year-round shelter um, up here, um, when it's n those cold weather, winter shelters aren't. Um, so you've got one, and Feed My Sheep Feed my has sheep an has overnight. One. I think they do um, a couple of th weeks or four weeks shorter than ours, but it's a little warmer down there. Right, and um, so we are oftentimes, if people are here and they don't have options, we're offering to get them to shelters out of the area. Mm -hmm. um, and so if... There were, there were, of course, there's shelter. If you had a year-round emergency shelter, um, then you don't, you, we wouldn't be making that move out of the area. We'd be doing here, but then hopefully it's the next step, and the the shelter is truly what it's meant to be, is a 60 or 90 day shelter, and yeah. then what's the next step versus how do we help these try to help folks yeah. year after year. I mean, you're asked right now to do something that your name and what you actually do conflict a little bit. Yeah. If <laughs> we, you know, we are actually organized as an emergency homeless shelter, but people tend to drop the word emergency because, yeah. frankly, we haven't had the housing options right. to graduate as many people to as we'd like. So we get people who have been with us four or five or even longer years. Right. And some of them, unfortunately, we have a hard time feeling like we can push, you know, uh, to 
do better or get more integrated into the mainstream because of their the nature of their problem. Right. You know, we, we don't have total sympathy for people that are choosing to be addicted, although I think the compassionate view of that is like this is symptomatic of your situation. Right. So don't blame. Try right. to and like AA says, it's attraction, not promotion of the program and so hopefully we're attracting people to our program too. But we do have a real moral dilemma about what to do with people whose behavior is so disruptive or just negative or even harmful to other clients. You know, and when you've got one big room that people sit in in the day center where they're doing job hunting or they're mm -hmm. doing their laundry or they're, you know, doing all these different functions we're trying to get going, uh, and someone's in there screaming their head off or preaching at the top of their voice about one thing or another. Uh, we don't care what they're saying. It's just the volume and the disruptiveness right, of right. it that doesn't work. Um, so, well, we care a little bit about what they're saying. If they're being, you know, misogynistic or racist or whatever like sure. that, we'll try to say, that's it, consequences. Yeah. So there's a kind of a tension in the whole concept of helping people, whether it's... Um, mental health or addiction or just helping people on practical level, at what point uh, in offering your energies to them do you want to make them accountable or make that person start to create a flicker of self-induced responsibility for what they're doing and how, what they're choosing to do? And that that's an issue throughout the mental health field, too. It's like, Absolutely. you know, how much are we... Uh, on the one hand, people are saying, well, you're blaming them. You're making it like they chose this. And then the opposing view is like, well, at some level of consciousness, people are choosing that. You know, just like do I choose to gain another pound by eating another pint of <laughs> Haagen-Dazs coffee ice cream? You know, it's a right. choice. Now, I may wrestle with that as I drive by Roxy's and say, yeah, the steering wheel wants to veer over there and buy some ice cream. Or do right. I say, nope, I'm not eating that ice cream today. So, I mean, it's the same people, same with people with addictions. I mean, any approach to addiction treatment talks about the temptation of using or, mm -hmm. you know, falling off the wagon is an old term for it, you know, uh, falling off the water wagon. So I don't know, how does that fit with what we do? I mean, what, what's your take on that? Like, do we, when do we reach a point where we feel like it's our job to impose consequences as a means of motivating people to make a better choice? Well, I think there's, I mean, there's certain expectations of behavior, um, whether it's you and I and, and we walk into a store or restaurant, whether it's somebody who is considered homeless um, and they're in a shelter situation, um, whether it's someone just walking into our office asking for help. I mean, there's certain, you can call them rules, you can call them whatever you want, but there's expectations that you um, don't disrupt other people, that you're not hateful, that you're... Um, have a general demeanor that is not disruptive. And I think when, when folks um, abuse that, um, maybe it's not their fault that they have mental illness, that they have, you know, addiction issues or whatever. Um, there's consequences for that in that we can't have this behavior here. The challenge is always where do they go? Um, you know, so, so where are we able to do that? And that's where I think the police end up getting dragged into that a lot. And, and Because and, people's behaviors cross the line of something that's considered a breaking of the law. Whether right, it's open, but, open container rule or loud and disorderly or physically right. threatening someone. Right. You know. And that's such a challenge for them because they... They're getting better. I think that that's what our law enforcement is getting so much better about getting their officers trained in just mental health first aid and how, to de how do you de-escalate and how do you do things to, to really help these folks in those situations. And it's not just the law enforcement. No. Uh, Lindsay May and I uh, and Andy Atkinson and myself did a training for the hospital staff here ah. about six months ago or something like that just on de-escalating people that are building sure. up to scream or building up to cause trouble uh, or hurt somebody. And uh, 
you know, people in hospitals, uh, working in hospitals, deal with this a lot. And it may sure. not just be in the emergency room. It could be at the cafeteria yeah. where yeah. someone's already frustrated. They've just found out some bad news about their diagnosis or found out some bad news about their insurance not covering or something right. that would upset just about anybody. And they take it out on the guy who's trying to make him a veggie burger, you yeah. know. <laughs> So yeah, so how do we how do we educate more people to help to de-escalate those folks? Um, you know, we've had we've had people come in and, and in our offices too, where they're just they're upset and they're screaming, and um, hopefully we can usually de-escalate them and um, to where they're at least willing to leave, if if not to sit down and have a conversation. Um, and you know. There's what I call psychological jujitsu, you know, where you can work magic at times and turn yeah. somebody who's ready to hit you with a board into sitting down and going, you're right, you know, yeah. let's talk about what right. the next step is. But that doesn't happen 100% of the time. No. And, no. Uh, <laughs> and that's where thank you law enforcement. <laughs> well, that's correct. I mean, when, yeah. when the whole relationship See, we have a chart in my office that starts, it's a pie-shaped thing, and the top one half of the pie is the person you're trying to help, and the other half is the helper. And it can be teacher and student, or it can be employer, employee, but the same dynamics uh, are there. And that is, uh, if, ideally, you want a collaborative relationship where right. you're saying, I can offer this, and you may need this, and, right. well, I can do this part on my own, and, right. and it's all very friendly and helpful. And that's what... A lot of people who go through schools of counseling or psycho psychology learn because the people they practice on are their fellow students, mm -hmm. and most of their fellow students aren't too crazy. But what do you do with people who um, want to project the blame for their situation onto whoever's handy? Yeah. And the trouble is, when we're in a helping organization, we're kind of the handy targets, you know, and so um, that's a problem sometimes. And I think at some point, um, I know in our homeless shelter day center, we have consequences. And we start with small increments of consequence. Like we might say, hey, get off the chair, sit down, be calm. How about a Twinkie? You know, how about mm -hmm. a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Because it's amazing how often one problem really manifests as something else. Uh, Don Bird and I went to a training by the American Jail Association about a 300-pound guy in the jail situation out in New York that was causing all kinds of problems. And one of the one of the, the guards or counselors or somebody said, you know, I offered him one of these Crispitos or, you know, some kind of peanut butter and jelly thing, and he was calm for hours after that. And he said, oh, mm. maybe that's, he's hungry. He was <laughs> hungry, know, The yeah. guy is hungry. You know, his, his stomach right. clock wasn't on the, exactly the same schedule as the jail food yeah. which may have been kind of boring anyway so uh yeah so again i think you're doing a great job of of illustrating how tough some of these situations are we get in you know and i do think that uh you know there might be a guide for all, all of those who work in fields where uh compassion fatigue is a problem or a risk <laughs> You know, to say, what do we do when this? What do we do when that? You know. Sure. And uh, what's the best anecdotal story you have on somebody who's risen themselves up that makes you feel like this is all worth it? That's uh, so. It's. Uh, I'm glad you twisted that because I think sometimes you talk. Well, you talk about the the people who are tough, but fortunately, and I think what keeps us going, what keeps you going, is those are they're few and far between, and they're like the the teacher, the fifth right. grade classroom that has the one the one bad kid that disrupts the classroom all the time, but the other 29 are great. So we have. I mean, we've we've had so many great success stories and. Um, but one one of them is um, just this gentleman who came to us, and, and he's always so awesome about saying, yes, please share my story. But when he walked in our door, he was actually on crutches, and his leg had been amputated because he had fallen down and um, had a cut on his ankle that he didn't realize when mm -hmm. he fell. And um, by the time he realized how badly it was infected, it was too late. And so they cut his leg off. He'd been working all along, 
um, but then was out of work, but of course worked as many industries in our valley are. Um, they don't have vacation, they don't have sick pay. Um, and so he just, um, he, I'll cut out half of the story here, make it shorter, but, but anyways, he was in need of, he, he was in need of rent assistance, he was in need of food and everything. And we, um, through a number of years working with him, um, were able to get him working with things like the Department of Oak Rehab that could help him get a prosthetic, found out he was also partially deaf and could get hearing aids. And he's housed, you know, he is now housed. He's and does he successful. have work of some sort? Or is he, all he, has, he has worked off and on at different times, and sometimes he's unable to do it because of his prosthetic and, and the things that he wants to do. Um, so that hasn't been as successful, so he is um, receiving more like disability and things like that to but sustain. He's, he's housed, he's independent. And, um, and and we have, we have, that's one of those, we've kind of become his family. He's, he's in asking Well, us that's back to things. what I said at the beginning. Yeah. You know, it used to be family looked after people right. that had problems or hard times or couldn't yeah. quite cut it, or churches or spiritual right. groups. Well, Miriam, I think it's just great having you on. We've well, managed to you. complete another segment here, according to my <laughs> director, so... Um, <laughs> But I think it's great to know that there are cases that we sit back and go, oh, that's great. Oh, yeah. But for what we were able to help this person with and their cooperation, which is a key part, right? Um, they would have maybe met with something disastrous or something really sad. Right. And that has happened in this valley where people have gotten drunk and fallen in a ditch and woken up frozen to death. So not Absolutely. woken up, but yeah. the next morning. Right. So I just want to salute you and Catholic Charities as well as everybody else in this valley that works with the people in need and the homeless. Yeah. And I think we'll just uh, stop us there and realize that uh, there are many different ways to help. There are many different problems. There's a whole grab bag of things that can be applied to helping. And this, uh, this stakeholders group is working on that. Yep. I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> Because it's going to take a long time yeah. to really make a strong impact. So yeah, well, thanks for helping bring awareness. You know, well, to, that's the to purpose the, the here. Whole thing. Yeah, the, the purpose here is to help the general public understand not only what we're trying to do, but just how complex and maybe how wide the need really is. Right. So thanks very much. Thank you. Sun went down and the jungle fire was burning.